All right, we're working our, our way through the New Testament at breakneck speed. Uh, one chapter a week, which was a great idea until I got to chapter 6 that has 71 verses. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand in the air. Someone will bring one to you. Uh, you can confirm with me that this is a long chapter, and I'm going to try and do my best to get this chapter uh, done today so that we can move on. Now, when we go through the Gospel of John, there's a few things that we want to remember. Uh, the first thing I would say is uh, that this book was written so that you may believe. And so uh, it's important for us who are already believers to build on that belief, to strengthen our belief as we get to know our Savior more. But it's also a wonderful opportunity for you if you have friends or family or co-workers or neighbors uh, that you would love to see come to know Jesus Christ. A great way to do that is the Gospel of John, whether you can encourage them to read it on their own or have a discussion with them through the Gospel of John, or even if you could convince them to come visit the church. Again, those May I Invite You to Church cards might help with that. Uh, but just an opportunity to grow in our belief in our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the other things, though, we see in the Gospel of John is what are called the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. So 20-some times Jesus uses the phrase, I am, but on seven occasions, he follows that with some sort of word picture to describe to the crowds who he is. And chapter 6 is one of those. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Who comes to, uh, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And we have this picture now as Jesus as the bread of life. Now with that understanding of this chapter, it'll help you see how the whole chapter actually goes together. Because in the first part of the chapter, he feeds with the loaves of bread 5,000 people. And then after that, he has this discussion with, what, with the people with what it means for him to be the bread of life. And so that's going to be the tie that holds this entire 71 verses together. So with a little bit of time left this morning, let's see if we can work our way through this. I'll just read this in chunks and then go back and explain some things and then hopefully at the end be able to tie it together in such a way that it'll be an encouragement and a challenge for you. In verse 1 of John 6, it says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, uh, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over 
by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So, this is the feeding of the 5,000 that we see in the Gospel of John. Uh, those of you that grew up in Sunday school, maybe this is probably a pretty familiar phrase for you or a familiar story. You've heard this. I hate to call it a story. Uh, a familiar historical account of the life of Jesus Christ, something that actually occurred. Uh, but uh, the powerful uh, idea of Jesus being able to get this crowd of people, and there's kind of two crowds of people kind of coming together at the same time uh, in verse uh, two, it tells us that there was a large crowd that was following him because they saw the signs which he was performing. But also uh, in verses four and five, we see that it was also the Passover feast was uh, nearing. And so it was possible there was a big pilgrimage of Jews that were also making their way to Jerusalem because they were required to under the law. So he looks out and he sees all of these people and he decides it's time to test his disciples. And so he says to them, hey, how are we going to feed all of these people? And it says it was a test. It says he already knew what he intended to do. This wasn't like some big surprise moment like he looked out and he's like, oh, maybe I should feed these people. No, this was all part of his plan, part of his purpose. But he looks at all these people and he says, how are we going to feed all these people? And the disciples are like, I mean, we couldn't afford to pay for food for all these people. It would take 200 days wages to pay for all of these people to eat. And that's before they actually did the accounting of how many people. That's just looking at the crowd, like 200 days wages. One of them, Andrew, says, well, I guess we could turn it into a potluck, but there's really only one person here who brought any food. He's got a couple loaves of bread and a couple of fish. But what is that to feed this many people? And then that's when Jesus has all the people sit down in this kind of grassy place in this field. And it says in verse 10, the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus takes those loaves and he takes those fish and he gives thanks to his Father in heaven. And then he, through his disciples, begins to just distribute the food. And it turns out in this miraculous moment that as he prayed, there was enough to feed all the people there and enough to have 12 baskets left over. Interesting, 12 baskets. How many disciples now? 12. They said Jesus intended to test them. And the results of the test were that they all got to take with them their own personal basket of remembrance. Look, look what my Savior can do. Look what my Lord can do. Now, the people that we're following were somewhat inconsequential, I think, in this moment. I mean, the signs that Jesus were doing, the miraculous things that he was doing, uh, were always for a purpose, and it was to draw people to believing in him. But in this moment, it says in the text that he was doing this for his disciples, that he wanted those who were following him uh, because they had some level of belief in him that were saying, hey, would you teach us? Would you be our teacher? So he wants to teach them something specific. And what he's teaching them is the power that he has to provide for them. But it's interesting because he's already been doing miraculous things. First, he turned, you know, the water into the wine. Then he healed the royal official son who wasn't even there with them. 
And then he helped a paralyzed man walk. And so when he says to them, what shall we do to feed these people? I think he's just checking to see if any of them say, could you do one of those miraculous things again? Because that's how powerful you are. That's how amazing you are as our God. But none of them actually responded in that way. And so Jesus then shows him his power. He proves to them one more time just how amazing he is. Now, we're going to see this thing happen in this passage that will become more clear when you take what we have at the beginning here in verse 2 and you add it to the very end, to the things uh, that we see at this in the, in the last couple of verses of this chapter. But what we're going to see is there's kind of this process in discipleship. Uh, first, it says they followed. And sure enough, in verse 2, there's a large crowd of people following Jesus. But those who are following Jesus aren't necessarily believers in him yet. They're just kind of following along to see what they think about this guy. Or maybe they're just following along because it says here of the, of the amazing healings that he had done. So maybe they just wanted to see the show, right? Well, then he feeds them. Now it's dinner and a show. So now they're really excited. But it just starts with following. But then you're going to see at some point following becomes believing. But at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that the following that led to believing comes to knowing. And that's where we need to get ourselves. This is the thing that will stabilize your faith. Uh, For me, uh, believing in Jesus actually became pretty simple. I mean, when I heard it, I just believed it. I just did. Uh, It's not like that for everyone. Some people need to be convinced. They need apologetics. They need to think through it. Bob had to make a checklist of reasons I should and reasons I shouldn't believe. He thought through it in a very logical fashion. Some people have to be drugged to it by their parents. Some people have to get off drugs first. Some people, he takes them off the drugs to prove who he is. It's different from everyone, but for me, the the believing part wasn't that hard. But there became a point in my life where believing was no longer what I had. What I had was knowing it was true. And when I moved from believing it was true to knowing it was true, there became this new stability to my life. It was no longer this roller coaster of faith where I had these emotional responses to the things I saw in the world or the things that I saw in his word. Early on in my faith, I could easily be shaken. I'd have to go through this process. Wait, do I believe this is true? I'd have to ask this question. I'm, I'm looking at something in Scripture and saying, wow, that doesn't really match up as well as I thought it should. Is this, is this really true? Or I'd see some tragedy happen in the world or some miserable thing would happen to me and I'd think, oh, is, is, is God even really out there? How can he allow this to happen? i just kind of go through these kind of crises of my faith. I'd just sink down low and then I'd kind of crawl back up out of it just hanging or clinging sometimes to my belief. But then there became a a point in my life where I had seen enough of who Jesus Christ was, where I just knew it was true, and it no longer mattered what happened to me or what I read in the Word, because I just knew it was true. And so now in every circumstance, in every situation, uh, the way I like to say it is I just give God the benefit of the doubt. If something happens in the world that would cause somebody to doubt their faith, I just give God the benefit of the doubt. He's bigger than this. He's got it figured out. He's got a plan. He has a purpose in it. I don't always see it. I don't always know it. And that can be miserable at times. 
but it's not going to change that I know that he is who he says he is. Or sometimes I run across difficult teachings or things that I'm having trouble understanding in the scripture. Theologies that maybe seem too harsh or realities that seem uh, uh, atypical to the picture of the Jesus that I've created in my mind over the years. And when I see those things, I no longer have this crisis of faith, but now I just go, God is and he is good. This is what I know. And so somehow this falls under that truth. And I'm going to trust him in it. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, this particular group of followers at this point, I don't think are there yet. Many of them don't even believe yet. And you're even going to see those who are his disciples in this passage. Some of his disciples, not the 12, but some of his disciples, those who are saying that they were believers, are actually going to abandon him after he teaches about himself being the bread of life. Well, this interesting thing happens here. The people, when they saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, the prophet uh, is likely a reference uh, to an Old Testament promise in Deuteronomy 18, that there would be a prophet like Moses who would follow after him. Uh, Moses, if you might recall, in the Old Testament uh, would be like a mediator between God and man. God would speak to Moses. Moses would speak to the people. The people would speak to Moses. Moses would speak to God. He was kind of the go between, between God and humanity. And it even said, God said this of Moses, that when you speak Moses to the people, it'll be as if God is speaking to you. And so in Deuteronomy 18, in Moses' final sermons before he before he dies, he's telling the people there is a prophet to come. And so the people were always kind of looking for that prophet. And now they're saying of Jesus at this point, surely this is the prophet. When they see the sign or the miracle which he had performed, when they see the bread being provided out of heaven to them, surely he's the prophet like Moses And if you recall, in the time of Moses, there was a time where the manna came from heaven to provide for the people. So they're seeing that clear connection there. Now, they're not quite to the point yet where they understand that the prophet and the Messiah are the same person. You'll see this actually in chapter 7, there in verses 40 and 41 in chapter 7. They kind of have this argument amongst the people. Uh, In in chapter 7, 40 and 41, some of the people said, Uh, this is certainly the prophet. Others say this is the Christ. So they're not quite to the point where they understand the prophet and that the Messiah or Jesus who is Christ are the same. They're trying to figure out which one of these Old Testament roles are being filled by Jesus. Uh, The reality is that all those Old Testament roles were pointing to one person, Jesus Christ, who is going to be a prophet, a king, a Messiah. He's going to be all of those things to all the people. So in verse 15, it says, Jesus perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. And so he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. 
The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea, uh, saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So here's the circumstance. After seeing this miraculous moment, Jesus can perceive that the crowd is about to make him king by force. It's not the first time the crowd of Jews has done this. Remember the used donkey salesman in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Saul. He tried to hide in the luggage, but the people took him by force and made him king. Because after all, he was tall. That's all you really need to be king. Well, these people are so amazed by the miraculous things that Jesus is doing. They're about to make him their king. And Jesus knows this is not the time and this is not the method by which he's going to become the king of the people of Israel. So he sneaks off. His disciples, after dismissing the crowd, they get into the boat. Now, everybody sees the disciples get into the boat, but they don't see Jesus get into the boat. So they kind of disperse. They start their way across the sea. They get about three or four miles out into the water, and a storm starts to brew. And then it gets weird. It says Jesus just comes walking on the water up to the boat. How's it going, guys? He actually intended to just walk right by him, which I think is kind of cool. Like if I could walk on the water, I think that's what I'd do. Just walk by boats. Like, oh, no, I got this one. I'm just going to keep going. I, I think this is absolutely nothing to do with the text, but three or four miles. I walk three or four miles on level ground. I'm exhausted. He's walking three or four miles on water. <laughs> His poor disciples have been rowing to get to this point, three or four miles, and he just walks up. They're kind of afraid of him, so he gets in the boat, calms the storm, gets them to the other side of the sea. It says actually immediately. So either one of two things has happened. Either he has miraculously brought them to the other side, or, and that or wasn't intended to be a pun there, that was accidental. Either they immediately miraculously were brought to the other side, or in the midst of the storm, they couldn't tell how close they were. <laughs> and they're just kind of freaking out, and the shore's right there, and they can't tell it just yet. And Jesus is like, uh, well, come on. And he just pulls them in. <laughs> but either way, it's just kind of this amazing, miraculous thing. This is, again, one of the signs. This is now the fifth sign. So the first sign was water into wine. The second was healing the royal official's son. The third was healing the paralyzed man. The fourth was feeding the 5,000 people. And now this is the fifth one where Jesus walks on water. What's interesting about many of these, the water into wine, only his disciples knew about it. The people at the wedding didn't have any idea. The one servant knew about it. When he heals the royal official's son, the only one that really knew about it was the royal official because he was here. 
Jesus said, your son is healed. And the royal official had to go all the way home to find out if it was true. So the crowd never really found out if it was true. And then the paralyzed man, Jesus made him keep it quiet. Now, he didn't do a very good job of that. Eventually, that got out. Jesus got in trouble for healing on the Sabbath because why would you want to do something good on a day of rest? Feeding the 5,000, of course, everybody who was there knew about that. But then here again, the boat, this is just for the disciples. So some of these signs were just for an exclusive group, but that exclusive group, luckily for us, wrote these things down and shared it for us. But again, it shows the power of Jesus in ways that we've never comprehended before we saw what was written about him in the word. Things that the people maybe would not have predicted. I don't know of any verse in the Old Testament that says Jesus is going to walk on the water, that the coming Messiah is just going to walk on the water. But I'll tell you this right now, if I would have seen it, if I would have been one of the ones that would have saw him walking on the water, I'd have believed he was anything he said he was. Absolutely believed it. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And now these people are going to kind of figure it out here because they remember that the disciples had left and that Jesus was over here. Now Jesus is gone. The disciples are gone. There's only the one boat. How did Jesus get out of here? So they're like, let's just work our way to the other side. And so then some other boats come around in the morning. They borrow those boats. I don't know how that works out. They get themselves to the other side and then they find Jesus in verse 59. We'll learn that he was actually hanging out in the synagogue that day teaching. But they all come up to Jesus and they're like, when did you get here? How is this even possible? Of course, the people are confused by this and maybe he told them, maybe he didn't. He doesn't certainly tell them specifically here. But what he does is he confronts them about why they were interested in him. It's interesting. Look at this in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has, whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that my father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
So this is where Jesus is going to make that statement that I am, or as he says, I don't want to make, I'm not, I'm not. But Jesus is going to say, he is the bread of life. It's the first of the seven I am statements. But the circumstance is interesting. They find him teaching in the synagogue. They all come to him. They ask the question, how did you get here? And basically, Jesus just calls him out and he's like, you know, you're only here because I fed you. Kind of like a wedding. You're only here for the, for the reception. You're just here for the food. That's the reality with these folks. He can diagnose their hearts. They're just there because they got fed on the other side. And they're thinking, maybe he'll do it again. And again. And again. Like a stray cat. Wherever the food is, they'll keep going. You don't want a stray cat, don't put cat food out on your deck, right? They will keep coming as long as you keep putting food there. Jesus diagnoses this. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now they had previously been following him because of the signs of the healing. They didn't really believe who he was yet. Then he feeds them and they continue to seek him, but this isn't even because of the signs. This is because they're thinking he's going to feed them again. So that's when Jesus takes their physical hunger and says, this is not about fulfilling your physical need. This is about fulfilling your spiritual need. Don't come to me because you need to fill your belly. Come to me because I am the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Don't come to me because you want bread. Come to me because I am the bread who gives eternal life. Now, it's interesting. They're the one that actually make the connection to Jesus in the Old Testament there. They're the ones that make the connection to the manna that you see in in Numbers chapter 11. If you want to look into that sometime, that first 15 verses kind of uh, tells the story there in Numbers chapter 11. They actually quote out of Psalm 78 here in verse 24. Uh, he says, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. It's remembering the things that God had done. There's something interesting, though, that happens in that Psalm. Psalm 78, they quote verse 24, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. But the circumstances is much more like verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in His wonderful works. There's still a gap in belief there. They're seeing the amazing things Jesus is doing, but they're still not buying into who he is. They're still in it just to see something incredible. They just want to see the show. And now they're referencing manna in the wilderness because what they want is that manna every single day, just like Moses provided And so Jesus says, I'm not here for that type of provision, but I am, in fact, the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The same words, by the way, he used with the woman at the well in chapter 4. And then she says, well, give me some of this water. They say a similar thing here. 
There's another interesting thing that happens in this section. They ask him another question in verse 28. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, how is it that we can do the same miraculous things that you do, Jesus? And still today, that's a little bit of a problem, even within Christianity. There are many people who are following Jesus Christ, but what they really want to do is be able to do the miraculous things that he did. That's their concern. That's their thought. And so here's the question. He says, or they say, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answers in verse 29, the work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is the work of God for you? That you would believe in him. To say it in another way, what is the will of God? Well, in verse 39 and 40, it comes up again. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. He's continually drawing them, even though he's using this metaphor, this picture of him being the bread of life, it's all intended that they would see in that metaphor, that they would see in the miracles that Jesus is the one that they should believe in to have eternal life. And apart from believing in Jesus Christ, there's no eternal life. He he continues on with this discussion with the Jews. Uh, You'll see something happen here. They start to mumble or grumble amongst themselves or murmur in some translations. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him in verse 41 because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, they're grumbling about the came down from heaven part here. Uh, They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So now comes their objection to believing in Jesus. Wait a second. Jesus is saying he came from heaven, but we know his mom and dad. How do we deal with, with that. Now, what Jesus recognizes is actually a deeper spiritual problem. That they actually weren't called to salvation at this point. So they're grumbling because he came down from heaven, he says. He's making this claim, I came down from heaven. They can't deal with that because his mom and dad, they happen to know. How can this possibly be? But Jesus diagnoses the real problem is You're just not one of the called, or at least not at this point. I'm not saying it's impossible for them to be saved, but there are just some people who it does not seem to matter how clear you make it to them, they will never understand it. I was listening to somebody explain a point the other day. It was on a podcast 
but I'm listening to this guy explain a point, and I'm thinking to myself, well, this couldn't be any more clear. It's quite obvious what he thinks. And then all these comments following after it, people are basically saying, that's not true, this is true. And the thing they were saying that is true is exactly what he was saying. And it was just going on and on and on. I'm like, how could he have said it more clearly? Well, Jesus is going to clear it up again because they're missing the point. They're getting caught up on he's the bread. They're getting caught up on uh, he came down from heaven and they're missing the point that he's trying to make. The point that he's trying to make is this in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will have eternal life. In this illustration, I am the bread of life. If you don't eat the bread, you don't get life. It's better than the bread of Moses. All those people that ate the manna in the wilderness all have one thing in common. They eventually died. That bread did not give them eternal life. It just filled them for a time, for a moment. Jesus is saying, I'm not a temporary fulfillment. I'm not a placeholder of the prophecies. I am the one that you believe in to gain not a temporary life, but an eternal life. But they're still caught up and they're starting to struggle. And now it's going to get even more difficult. Because at the end of that, in verse 41, it says, He will live forever and the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's literally saying, I'm going to surrender my flesh for the life of the world, which we can look back through the cross and say, well, that's obvious. He surrendered his flesh at the cross. That's where it became clear. They haven't seen the cross yet. They hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life and I give you my flesh. And now they've got an issue. In verse 52, they turn from grumbling to arguing. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Cannibal. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So they're arguing like, how can he tell us we have to eat his flesh? And Jesus doubles down. He says, oh, you don't have to just eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. Because if you don't have me, you don't have eternal life. If you don't abide in me, remain in me, dwell with me, then I can never abide with or remain in you. Does that seem like maybe he could have gone a different way there? Uh, he's going to with his disciples in a minute, but he kind of has this habit of leaving the crowd hanging. He'll, he'll just do this over and over and over again. He'll give a parable and then he won't explain it. He'll just walk away. He'll say something like this, which would incite some kind of discussion, right? Oh, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to be saved. And then he just kind of stops 
And the only ones that will get the explanation are the ones that go, wait, where are you going? I, I, gotta, I gotta understand what you're saying here. I, I don't get this. The ones who followed up or followed after him. In this case, that'll be his disciples. In verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at this said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. <clears throat> the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So now the disciples come to him and say, Yeah, I kind of get why they're arguing, Jesus. This whole eat my flesh and drink my blood thing, that's not uh, setting right with me either. And then Jesus explains to them, in somewhat simple terms, really, he's like, look, there's flesh and there's spirit. And he says this in verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit. In other words, he says, I'm making a spiritual point, not a fleshly point. I don't need you to actually cut a chunk of my arm off and eat it for eternal life. But if in the illustration, if in the metaphor, I'm the bread of life, bread does you no good unless you believe enough to eat it and then you actually ingest it. If you don't do those things, you will not receive what the bread has to offer. So this is spiritual. It's the spiritual taking in of Jesus Christ. We're not asked to physically eat and drink the blood of Jesus. We're not physically asked to do those things. Now, some will relate this to communion, and you can certainly see the connection there. I would believe it would be a foreshadowing of communion. But in communion, we believe that this is symbolically representing the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But at this point in the narrative, the communion has not happened yet. It's not actually a thing that has occurred, so there was no way he could expect them to understand that to mean communion. Maybe for us, looking back, we can see how it foreshadows the idea of communion. That's certainly not, a, I don't think, what Jesus was getting at here. He was making a spiritual point using a word picture, and those people were so freaked out by all the little details of it, Jesus just kind of leaves it there and says, hey, if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in me. He says something even a little scary, though. 
In verse 64, it says, He knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. So that's the they. So in other words, there's a number of people who actually don't believe, even though they may be following, even though they may be people calling themselves disciples of Jesus Christ. He already knows if you really believe or don't. And then he points out, but there's also who it is or who it was that would betray him, the one person who will be revealed at the end of this in verse 71. Now he meant Jesus, or Judas, and that was the one who is a devil. So now you have all of these disciples who hear Jesus' explanation, and it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And then he turns to the twelve and said, Are you going to go away too? Uh, This is the point I was alluding to at the beginning. Uh, You can see these kind of levels of progression. Uh, There's the the followers, those that are just kind of checking Jesus out. They just want to see the show. They're just there for the dinner. They just want to be part of something. They're just kind of following in that sense. But some of those followers become believers. But for the believers, you can get to the point where Peter did, where he said, we have believed and have come to know. So you can see the growth that's happening in Peter at this point. I believe when he followed Jesus at the beginning, it was just because Jesus asked him and he was intrigued. Somewhere along the line, he began to believe in Jesus. But it's no longer just a belief with him. He knows who Jesus is. He says, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter gets it, right? What did Jesus keep going back to? If you believe, you will have eternal life. Peter says, nobody else is offering that. Just know that it's true. But this is the scary part in this. Many of his disciples withdrew. That's kind of the scary part, right? Now, maybe you've experienced that in, in some of your friends or family. Just on fire for Jesus. They, they're at church all the time, Sundays and Wednesdays. These people were out of control. Had a home fellowship at their house. It just seemed like they had Jesus just all over their life. And then something happens. Either they run across a doctrine they can't understand or some miserable thing happens in their life. And they just start to withdraw from all of those things. They just start to pull away. Before long, they're not even walking with him anymore. It's important that we realize that if we're not careful, we can convince ourselves to withdraw. When whether it's the teaching or your life gets tough, to just start to pull away from our Savior Jesus Christ. And as we pull away, we eventually find ourselves in a place where we're not walking with Him anymore. Now, I'm not making a distinction here between saved and unsaved. I, I don't think the passage is giving me the freedom to do that with any clarity. 
I think God clearly knows who's saved. And I think all of those who are saved, Jesus will clearly bring to the end. He made that clear earlier in the book here. And when we all get to heaven, we'll figure out exactly who all the saved people are, right? In the meantime, all we can do is abide or remain in Jesus Christ to just stick with it. That's all we can do. Just stick with it. Don't withdraw. Don't stop walking with Him. Don't let the confusing or difficult or hard things give you an excuse to give up on what you believe. And I'll tell you, sometimes when you come through those hard things, and on the other end of it, you see that God is still there, you move from believing to knowing. question is, where are you? Just following along for the show? You believe for now, or do you just know? Can you give God the benefit of the doubt and just know when nothing else makes sense? He still is. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a chance to be in your word this morning would ask that you would help us to realize who you are and what it is you intend to do in our life. Lord, I would pray that we wouldn't just kind of haphazardly be following as long as it's convenient, uh, that we wouldn't be those who believe as long as it all makes sense to us. But Father, we would be a people who know that we would come to know these things. Father, that you would give us stability to our faith. Lord, I know every time the word is preached, every time your word goes out, that it does work in the hearts of the people present. Would you allow your Holy Spirit to speak to each person here today, myself included, that we could move to follower, to believer, to knower. That you would show them in your word where it is you're guiding them and directing them. That your word would be a sign for them that they would believe. Father, I trust your word to do its work in the hearts of the people here. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close in worship, just a couple of words. Uh, first is next Sunday. We're going to follow chapter six up with chapter seven. Yeah, it's not that hard, really. Uh, so all I'm asking you to do is just every day this week, read or listen to or go online and watch it on Netflix. But watch chapter seven, read chapter seven, listen to chapter seven every day so that the word is already working in your heart. So when we gather together, the hearts that are prepared are going to receive. It's going to be that good soil that bears great fruit. Uh, if you want to take a, a bit more of a challenge, you can try memorizing John 7.38. Try memorizing John 7.38 for next week. Uh, and then if you really are feeling up to it, uh, maybe just take a few moments today with your friends or your family or whoever you're hanging out with today uh, and just say, hey, what did you learn at church today? And see if they can remember any of it. 
And then you hopefully can remember a few things and share with them a few things. Uh, And then lastly, I would say this, that we always have our elders available to you after service. They would love to pray with you. They would love to guide you in things that are going on in your life, help you with needs that you might have. Uh, Most importantly, if you're stuck in one of these places trying to decide if you want to start following after this Jesus guy or or maybe you're starting to believe now and you'd like to make a profession of that faith or maybe you're, you're ready to be on solid ground. You just need them to help guide you through that. They'd love to be a part of that with you today. So you're welcome to come up during the closing song or you can sneak up afterwards if it's embarrassing to come up in front of all these people. So let's go ahead and we'll close in worship.